Everyone and welcome to Ladies Night, the official podcast of US Chess Women. I'm your host Jennifer Shahadi and you are listening to the artist Huga of hugamusica.com and that is a song that certainly captured my heart. Oh Capablanca. His bishop was small. Thanks to everyone who supports the podcast through shares and reviews and Apple Live. If you want to get more involved in all we do at US Chess to empower girls and women through chess, please consider a tax-deductible donation of any size to our US Chess Women program and reach out to me with any questions. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Ladies Night. This is Jennifer Shahadi, and I am super excited about my guest today. I've wanted her on my podcast since its inception for her lucid writings on science and justice. She's a theoretical physicist, and she just wrote a paradigm-shaking book, The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred. Our guest today, Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, is a professor of physics and a core faculty member in women's studies at the University of New Hampshire. That's right, why not both? She's also the co-creator of the Particles for Justice movement. This book is both an ode to her love for physics and astronomy, a tour of some high-end lowlights of her own remarkable career, and an impassioned call to make the world of science and the world more amenable to everyone, to all genders, to black women, to non-binary people, and to working people. There's so much overlap with this book and chess. And indeed, Chanda is a chess enthusiast. And we get into that in this podcast where we talk about how she got involved via the Hip Hop Chess Federation, via Wu Chess, and how we met. As she writes in her book, it may be that what we think we know is incomplete and will not be complete until we are able to think beyond how white men are trained to think in a Western educational setting. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein to Ladies Night. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I have listened to a lot of your interviews and talks, um, both before the book and after the book. And one of them, you explained on the BBC what theoretical physics is. And I don't think it ever been explained to me like that before. It sounds like this magnificent mix of math and data analysis and philosophy. Can you translate it for the chess crowd? Oh, man, I wish I had like prepared for this question, right? Because like, then I could have some like really smart analogy with things that we do when we're trying to play chess or, or something like that. There's data that we're collecting about the universe. And there are people who are doing experiments. And so sometimes theoretical physics is trying to come up with explanations for stuff that we have already seen. And then sometimes theoretical physics is using math and extrapolating from what we already know to create new ideas and try them out and make predictions for what we would expect to see if that theory or idea were correct. 
So one way of thinking about this is that we're wrong a lot of the time and we use math to try and describe the universe. And we're constantly basically in a back and forth between, you know, with the data and the math and trying to match them together. And when it comes to math, it sounds like from reading your book that you fell in love with science and theoretical physics more specifically first at 10 years old when you saw A Brief History of Time. Where did your love for math come in? Was it kind of hand in hand with physics or did it come a little later? I actually liked math first. So I was a kid who I just really liked patterns and I I really liked the pattern of times tables. So for me, I always think these days I've been thinking a lot that like my origin story with math is really in times tables, even though I really liked addition and subtraction when it was first taught to me. But I just really like the patterns and numbers. And so I think actually part of what attracted me to theoretical physics was the idea that the numbers weren't just this abstract thing, but they were actually a language that allowed us to write down like stories about the universe in a way that, you know, gave us predictions of physical phenomena. And that was an amazing idea. So I think for me, that was the attraction was actually this opportunity to use math as a tool and to get paid because I knew I was going to have to have a job of some kind when I was an adult. Wait, so when did you fall in love with the times tables? How old were you then? I was in first grade, so I was six. And there was a five-year-old who had skipped kindergarten who was in my class named Anna. (laughs) I still remember this like very clearly. Her name was Anna. And she knew something called the times tables. And I continue to be someone who's generally... I'm fine when people know what I know, but I'm horrified when people know things that I don't. (laughs) And so I was just like horrified that there was someone in the class who knew something that I didn't. And so I went home and demanded that my mom teach me times tables. And she was like, I can't, my mom's always been really uncomfortable with math. And at that point I was, I was living with my mom as a single parent. And she was like, ask your dad the next time you see him. And so I was like, dad, you have to teach me times tables. Initially, it was like this demand because I just wanted to like keep up with the smartest girl in class. <laughs> but then I, when he taught it to me, I was like, whoa. So like if you put like another two after the symbol and then you add another two, that that means the same thing. And that was just like really mind blowing for me. And I used to just like sit around and like write out the times tables for fun. Like I didn't, it wasn't something that was assigned to me. So you loved the fact that you could like flip it so that if it was like three times four, it could be four times three or three times four. I was particularly fascinated by that, right? And I was also really fascinated by the fact that like every time, like when I went from two times three to two times four to two times five, that each time I was adding two, but I didn't have to write like several twos, that there was like this shorthand, but then there was also this pattern that every time, like basically I was really interested in 2x equals y. (laughs) Like if I was like to put this in in algebraic terms, like for me, the idea that there was another way of writing this mathematical formalism down that was succinct was really, really interesting. And by the time I was 10 and got my first exposure to the idea of theoretical physics as a practice and as a job, I had already learned how to do long division. And so I was, I really enjoyed the mechanics of doing the procedures. There was something, I liked the algorithm of it. I will say that, which was like, it was guaranteed. You do the thing and you get the thing out. (laughs) Like there were clear rules that I had to follow. And I think that I, I enjoyed that aspect of it. 
I think that's really fascinating because I have a four-year-old and sometimes we're like counting things and I'm trying to explain to him that you don't have to count them one by one, that you can do like, there's a number of donuts or something you can do like six times two. So I'm very inspired that you love it. I'm going to keep trying. (laughs) I will say that when I was, when I was his age, right, I was definitely I am obsessed with the count on Sesame Street. <laughs> like, I loved when the count came on. I loved counting the bats. I loved the bats. Um, so I think I was really, and I'm, I'm definitely like a child of, of, of Sesame Street in, in many, many ways. I think in a lot of ways I was primed to just be like, oh, numbers are special. Because on Sesame Street, there was like a special number for every episode and numbers were special, right? So I think I was, I was set up for it for sure. <laughs> Now that I'm watching Sesame Street with my son, I love the number of the day, trying to guess it. It's pretty amazing. I remember one time we we got zero, which I thought was beautiful, like philosophically explained that like zero is also a number as well. That was really good. Yeah, the count. Okay. I love that this um, times table set you up because of course it really ties into um, both my podcasts, actually, The Grid and also Ladies Night. You um, set us up for eight by eight. Um, When did you learn how to play chess? I found a book about chess at a car boot sale in London when I was 10. It was, maybe it was the summer I turned 10. Um, So I found a book about chess in a car boot sale. And I think at the time, my impression was that chess was something that smart people did. And so if I wanted to be smarter, I should learn how to play chess. And so I actually taught myself how to play chess without a chess board, because all I had was the book. I didn't have a board. I didn't have pieces. So I learned with the old notation. And that was, that was how I learned to play chess. And then I think I demanded for like my holiday gift that year. I asked for a chess set. And so my dad bought me a chess set. And we played, we played one chess game. And my dad like really prepped me for it. And he was like, OK, you're going to lose a lot of games before you win a game. So I just want you to be prepared for that. And I don't want you to get discouraged. (laughs) And then we played and I guess like he went too easy on me and I beat him. And that was actually the last time I beat my dad at a game of chess. (laughs) When I was like, I don't know, I must have been like 11 years old or something like that. So that's how I got that's how I got into chess. And I'm probably still about as good at it as I was back then. (laughs) Sounds like no matter what you did, there was going to be a high chance that math would be involved in some way. But this movie kind of put you in that direction of the love for physics and astronomy. Yeah. And I, you know, I will say that even though like, I don't, I don't think I have, I don't have a particularly high competency with chess. Maybe that's the way that I will put it. I do think that that's partly a matter of practice and like, you know, what I got super focused and engaged with, but it's also the case that chess has at various points, like played a pretty important role in, you know, even helping me like exercise my brain and focus my mind. And even like the way that you and I first crossed paths, because I got really interested in the way that the chess community had some of the same dynamics that I was seeing in the physics world around race and around gender. And I was in, I was intrigued by that. And I was particularly intrigued by like people who were talking about combining hip hop and chess. And so I was one of the first people to join the Wu Chess website. And actually, so when I was a PhD student in Canada, I ended up being on the national news in a story about Wu Chess. And I think that's how I first crossed paths with you, because I was also involved with Wu Chess and um, some of the events that the Rizzo was doing at the time to promote chess. And he still loves chess. He was recently on the Chess Life magazine cover. I I saw you you reading that, that magazine. I was pretty excited. Yeah. Yeah, so you got into Wu Chess, and you say that you also use chess 
um, to kind of focus your mind when you, when, what do you mean? Like when you encountered a difficult problem or just when you wanted to distract yourself, like when would you use chess and how? Yeah. I mean, actually, to be honest, I was supposed to finish my PhD in the spring of 2010 and ended up having to graduate a year later because I got sick. And I got this like kind of mystery illness that made it really hard for me to think straight. And I eventually it was worked out that it was some kind of like bizarre, like vitamin deficiency that like almost never happens. And so it took like a really long time for people to work it out. But I was having a hard time calculating, right? Like, and for me, as you know, someone who was basically done with a PhD in theoretical physics, that was actually like a pretty big deal. So I was like, okay, well, I don't know what's going on with my brain, but I know that the brain can be trained. And so I sat down and I started playing chess every day and I started doing chess puzzles every day. And that was part of how I retrained my brain so that I could start calculating and focusing again. So for me, chess has always been like a really important tool when I feel like I'm, I'm not able to kind of like, I don't know if it's stress or not feeling well or whatever. Chess is the thing that I come back to when I want to be like, okay, I go back to the basics. This is how we solve problems. This is how we think that chess for me is the place where I do that work with my brain. And I would say that chess ended up being a really important tool for me in that moment because it really worked even before we worked out actually what the problem was, that I was actually able to kind of reset things. And I, I really think that chess had a lot to do with that. That's amazing. What, what was the problem in the end? So I can't remember. It was like one of the B vitamins or whatever. At some point, I worked it out. After spending a week at the Cleveland Clinic, where they were like draining my blood and doing all kinds of things, eventually I was like, well, I read this like really obscure study that said sometimes when you take like this one vitamin that like or you don't have enough of it, you have these symptoms. And so at some point, I just like was like, just bring me this vitamin and I'll try it. And within like a week, I felt better. And this was after like basically nine months of being sick and being gaslit by doctors and being told, oh, you're making the whole thing up. And, you know, I'm by nature, like I'm a small person. I have a really fast metabolism. And so I think that sometimes... I mean, this is a problem for people of all sizes, that there's just so much about the human body that we don't understand, that I think people had a hard time um, treating me, like the doctors were constantly assuming I had an eating disorder, and I've, I've never had a problem with an eating disorder, luckily. But it was one of those things where part of my self-treatment was actually playing chess, because I was like, even if I'm stuck in bed, even if I'm not able to calculate, the one thing that I can do is puzzles. And there's with chess puzzles, there's nowhere to go but up. No matter how bad you are when you start, if you just keep doing them persistently, you will get better. And that's that's like an amazing thing. And actually, I think like the amazing thing about the chess community is that it has set itself up so that there are so many different opportunities to find those tools to use, even if like you can't afford chess lessons. Um, and there are always like people willing to play games with you online. And so it's impossible to not have chess tools at your disposal pretty much 24-7. And the other thing I like about puzzles is that they're not zero sum, right? Like you're competing against yourself. So you don't actually have to win against somebody else in order to up your previous score, which is fantastic, um, especially when you're in recovery or trying to refocus your brain. What did you use at the time? Were you mostly using online puzzle tools or like an actual book? I was mostly using online puzzle tools. I think I was primarily hanging out on the internet chess club, which was like, you know, this is like 20, this is like 2010, 2011. I think this was before chess.com was as big as it is now. 
you know, I had stuff on my computer. Like I had a couple of different chess engines as well on, on my computer. You know, I think I had I had the chess endings book, the Polgar chess endings book. And so also that's like an incredible book to work through. And I know that people have like digitized, like have basically put all of those puzzles into digital form. But it really is a different thing to sit down and do it with a book. And I don't know, this maybe makes me sound old, but I always encourage people to actually have the experience of doing some of these things from a book and not just sitting in front of a computer, even though computers are increasingly important in chess. Even over the last decade, I think that's changed dramatically. I completely agree with you, Chanda. And people who work with children very frequently and also with like training children to be like some of the greatest players in the country for their age, like my brother, Greg Jihadi, or Grandmaster Irina Krush, um, they tell me that a lot of the times if a student is lagging, a lot of the time they recommend that they start doing puzzles in books or over the board. And we're talking about like little kids. And apparently it often makes a big difference that like that that causes a plateau at some point if they're never reading any written material. To pivot to another reason you were interested in the chess world, you mentioned that you saw some of the similar problems with racism and sexism in chess as you were observing in science. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, actually, since you mentioned like Irina Crush, right, like I have been following her career for a long time now. And, you know, when I was first starting to watch the chess world, um, she was she was quite young and, you know, was visibly one of very few women who were who were active at at a certain level, right? Like there were the Polgar sisters. And then, you know, it was a lot of men. And then like, occasionally, there were some some women we would hear about like you for example, right? And I think like in a lot of ways, physics has traditionally been a lot like that. Like occasionally there is an extraordinary woman like Mary Curie. And then it's a lot of men. <laughs> and then, you know, similarly, I think again, one of the reasons that Wu Chess drew me into it was like the very specific articulation of what if we pitched chess specifically to black folks through a website that's like, chess is a black game, right? And not just like for playing in the park, but also playing online. And I think that that pulled me in because in a lot of ways, it was similar to the messaging, the conversation that we were having at the time in the National Society of Black Physicists, which is saying like, physics is black. It's not just a thing for white people. Excellence in physics is a black thing. Excellence in chess is a black thing. Right, like one of the great things about the RZA in in the most recent co- cover story in Chesley was actually the inclusion of of his games. And actually, like my spouse sat down with with one of our chess boards and like worked through the games, and then came over and was like, "Look, I have to show you the way that he messed this game up. It's really incredible, like how he messed this game up." <laughs> right, that there's just something different about it when you see someone who you identify with in some way, that it's not because like there's anything inherently like, well, I was going to say there isn't anything inherently black or white about the chess pieces, but this is the one place where there is something inherently black or white about the chess pieces, right? But it's not a racial, it's not, there's nothing inherently racialized about it. Where like race or gender comes in is the representation of what you say as a black woman can achieve at the board. And when you see examples of, oh, someone like you can achieve at the board, you're more likely to be like, all right, I'm going to push through those hard spots because I know someone like me can achieve at the board. 
Absolutely. And you mentioned that there's nothing racial about the pieces. There are debates that kind of crop up from time to time, especially recently, um, because like there was a, I don't know if you read this story, but I think it popped up on Yahoo News about an AI that was listening to a chess video um, with Agad Mater and Hikaru Nakamura, and it got flagged for like um, white supremacist content because of talking about like the white pieces versus the black pieces and white having a better position or a superior position. And from time to time, people um, do question whether white moving first is something that should be reconsidered. What do you think about that conversation? I, I'm particularly interested in your thoughts because you do talk in this book about your expertise in dark matter and some of your ideas that if it was you who had to name it, you wouldn't call it dark matter. Yeah. So I guess before I give my opinion about that, I should probably give like a very quick summary of like, you know, what is dark matter? So dark matter was first hypothesized in the 1930s by a Swiss astronomer named Fritz Ficke. And he really started to think about this because he was looking at stars orbiting the centers of galaxies and was seeing something in the data that suggested to him that maybe the speeds that they were moving suggested that there was a bunch of matter in the galaxy that couldn't be seen. And this was something that basically went unverified until Vera Rubin and her colleague Kent Ford in the late 1960s and early 70s actually went and looked very carefully at lots of stars orbiting galaxies. And they realized that there was a lot more, that the the stars were going too fast to match the amount of radiating matter in the galaxy. So there was luminous matter in the galaxy, but it didn't explain the speeds of the stars. So this suggests that there's a bunch of invisible matter that actually makes up the majority of matter in the galaxy. A galaxy is like 80% dark matter and like 20% like stars and gas and the stuff that we can actually see. The problem with calling it dark matter is that it's actually invisible, as I just said. So light goes right through it. So it's not dark like, um, you know, Uh, your floor is dark and that means like it's absorbing more light and your walls are are white, right? And so like light is is more likely to bounce off of it. In the case of dark matter, light just goes right through it. And so I really think it should be called invisible matter. I'm not sure and convinced that the use of the word dark can be divorced from how people thought about dark in the 1930s and really all the way back to the 1880s when people were first asking this question of, are there, quote, dark objects in the sky? And that goes back to Lord Kelvin, uh, who was a member of the House of Lords at the UK at a time when, you know, they were actively colonizing the South Asian subcontinent. They were all over Africa. Africa was literally known at the time as the dark continent. Like, that's what the word dark meant in that time period. I haven't seen any discussion or historical record of what Fritz Vicky's like relationship with all of this was and like what his views about race were. So there's no way for me to know exactly like was he consciously thinking about it? Is it part of his milieu? So I will just say like my main beef with the use of the word dark is that I think it gives people the wrong impression of the phenomenon, which is that it's it's an invisible like if I hold out my hands and put somebody put some dark matter in it you would see my hands exactly as the way that they are. They would feel weighed down to me, but you visibly, like across Zoom, would not see anything different. But I I think it like raises an interesting question because the word dark also evokes different things for different people. Like for people of color who come from communities where um, colorism is a big topic of conversation, the word dark means something different to us, positive and negative, depending on what your experience with colorism has been. 
So in the case of dark matter, it's more that it's a misnomer than racist, but in people's everyday use of dark, where they might say like their darkest hour, that is like a relationship between classifying things that are dark or blacker as bad. Yes, exactly. I mean, someone was actually just tweeting at me this morning about a really good example of this, which is that like, sometimes writers will say like, oh, he became very furious and his complexion darkened, which is like, there's always like, dark means anger, it means bad, it means scary, it means dangerous. And, you know, when we reflect on having that association with the word, and then there are also people who are dark skinned, that this translates very quickly into associating their skin color with with something that's bad or something that's foreboding. And we also know that that's actually a historical like social phenomenon that that those connections have been drawn. So again, I think it's hard to separate, you know, the use of dark in the 1930s from that social context. But I don't know if 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 it was meant as a racist thing, if it's unintentionally connected to narratives about race or colonialism. But it is, you know, these these questions about what happens in chess, I think it's it, it is always interesting to think about regardless of what the intention is, right? Like maybe there is no racial context for why white goes first and black goes second. But when we're talking about bringing children, for example, who have a particular association with the word black, and the history of what it means to be Black in the United States, for example, and then you're telling them that Black always goes second, then the question for me isn't whether the chess pieces are racist. They're just like little inanimate objects. And the game's been around for centuries, since before slavery, since before the United States existed. But then the question we have to ask is, is it worth it to us that Black children who, you know, are not historical experts are still just putting the world together maybe have this association for them. And I think that that's an interesting question to have. Even as someone who tends to be like very traditional, like, oh, don't change the rules. But maybe that's, you know, maybe it's not worth it. I think it's philosophically quite interesting. I mean, chess didn't always used to be black and white. It used to be more red and white. But the additional issue comes actually from this AI situation, which of course was investigated and the video and the and the channel was was checked or the strike was cleared. But I, I think the problem is also all these things like you get you have to say more often black is worse here. You know, black is trying to equalize because, you know, in the majority of openings, that's the case, right? Right. So it's just these like sentences that a, the AI caught up on because they they come about so much more frequently. But, you know, there's a lot of resistance to conversation about this in chess because it's seen as like frivolous that you know, there's so many, you know, more important issues like police brutality and like lack of representation of people of color in chess. And so for somebody um, like me, who's also interested in the, these philosophical, like linguistic questions, I think it's it's worth talking about and it's also worth asking, is the conversation worth having? I think the answer is yes. And I, I'm glad you agree. <laughs> but <laughs> there's there, there tends to be a lot of resistance to it. Yeah, I mean, you know, what's coming to mind actually is something that I heard today and it was so striking. I actually wrote it down. I was just a few hours ago listening to a conversation between uh, the black feminist academic Moya Bailey and Demita Frazier, who's a, a black feminist organizer who was one of the co-authors of the Kambahi River Collective Statement, which is like considered like a foundational sta- statement in black feminist thought. And 
Moya has a new book out called Misogynoir Transformed, which I, I highly recommend about Black women's digital activism. And I, Demita made this comment today, we need to be involved in every sphere where we have to break down the myth of white supremacy. So pretty much where, anywhere that there's a story about, you know, can Black people do it, we need to be there saying yes. Black genius exists. Black brilliance exists. And also, it's okay to be Black and mediocre. You don't have to be Black and, and, and extraordinary. So I think, you know, yes, police brutality is incredibly pressing. Um, vigilante violence against Black people is incredibly pressing. But, you know, that those are not the only sites of negativity that Black people are experiencing. And again, I'm always thinking about children because, you know, children are are our most precious thing in the world. And Black children have a right to a childhood. And so often they're being denied their childhoods, for example, by police brutality. Like I think about Jacob Blake's children pretty much every day because they watch their father get shot seven times in the back, like right in front of them. And, you know, he lived, but they're always going to have this memory. And I don't know how you have a childhood after you witness something like that. But I think that there are also small things where like throughout your childhood, you're getting the message of like, oh, being black is different from being white. There are different opportunities. And, and so I think it does matter what black children are hearing at the chessboard when they're listening to chess commentary. It matters whether they only ever see like white men giving commentary on chess, whether they also see um, women of color doing it, whether they also see white women doing it. So I actually do think that those, those conversations matter a lot. And I think the interesting thing about that AI story that jumps out to me as a scientist is that this is one of the few stories where like the AI was like really vigilant. (laughs) Because like the other thing you can think about is what if you were training the AI on that conversation and the AI then walks away and is like, okay, in its little digital brain is like white better, black weaker, right? white, stronger, black, weaker. And so I'm, you know, that's what's interesting is that the, the AI was like, had been trained properly to raise questions about that. And usually the problem with artificial intelligence is that it goes in the opposite direction, which is that given enough time, AI just becomes racist because like it listens to people and learns from people the same way that children do, right? I don't think the way that AIs learn is the way that children learn, but I think you see some of the same patterns, which is like, you know, children aren't born racist. They have to be taught that. Yeah, that's a fascinating, some fascinating conversation there. And that's exactly why I think it's worth having the conversation. And maybe one of the reasons there was such a negative reaction to this was because uh, for some reason, the conversation came up in the wake of George Floyd's um, murder, and it just didn't seem like the right time for it. And I, I, I do, I, I do recognize why that was like perhaps bad timing. In your book, you have a wonderful chapter about it's called the anti-patriarchal agender, and you started off by quoting another physicist who says that particles are non-binary. Did I get that right? So actually, the person that I'm quoting, Amru Alkadi, is is not a physicist. And this is actually like, this is one of the key points. Amru is a, a drag queen and a performer, an Iraqi British drag queen and performer, a, a non binary person. And there was a clip that circulated widely on social media. I think it was last summer from an interview that they did with Channel 4 News in the UK, where 
they were being asked some questions about how they would explain non-binary identity. And they were pointing out that, you know, the objects that we typically refer to as particles actually experience in quantum mechanics something that we call wave-particle duality, where they behave like a wave and a particle, depending on the situation. They can be one or the other. And so they're really both things. And so Amru made this incredible point, which was like, yeah, particles can be non-binary. Why not people? And it was like really like a mind-blowing moment for me because, you know, people kept sending it to me and saying like, you know, hey, Chanda, is the science okay? Like, is this actually like, is what they're saying like reasonable? And I was like, yeah, this is like such a great explanation. And it highlighted for me, and I recently wrote about something, something relating to this in upcoming issue of Physics World where I'll have a column about intuition that non-binary people probably have an easier time understanding wave-particle duality in an intuitive way. Because the idea that something or someone could be two things at the same time is not so like outlandish. The way that, you know, for those of us who are used to living in a world full of binaries, it can be hard to think of that kind of duality. But that duality is very fundamental when you don't live in a world of, of binaries in the same way. Yeah, I thought that was a really beautiful part of the book where you talk about how if they are non-binary, it would be natural for the physics world and the science world in general to be more accepting of non-binary identities and quite frankly, very curious about it. Um, And then I thought, of course, about chess and about how that's definitely not the case in chess, that chess is very much about binaries and, you know, black versus white, the knight versus the bishop, you know. Demis Hassabees famously talked about how like he thought that was the central tension of chess. And that's how he got his funding for Deep Mind, that the bishop is worth about three and the knight is about three, and yet they have such different powers. And then, of course, as pertinent to this conversation, women versus men in chess mm. and how there are women's tournaments, which, of course, with my work with U.S. Chess Women... I'm a fan of many of them, these women's and girls' events. And there are open events that before Susan Polgar were actually called men's events. And like reconciling that and the hundreds of questions that female chess players get um, every year about why those exist with also being open to more acceptance of non-binary identities, it's really tricky. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Like, how do we both promote women and girls chess events and also make space for opening our mind to a different concept of gender. My general feeling about this, and I know that there are lots of people in the trans community and non-binary community who are thinking about these things in different ways, but my, my general attitude about this is that one of the reasons that we create these spaces that are, for example, specifically for women and girls is to have autonomous spaces where the power dynamics are different, where the power dynamics of patriarchy don't affect us in the same ways that they do in so-called mixed environments, where men somehow end up having more power than, than women and girls. And if we start to think about it as spaces where power is organized differently and routed differently, then really... I think that those spaces for women and girls should become spaces for women, girls, and gender minorities. That um, what we're really talking about is people who have traditionally been marginalized in a society that's fundamentally patriarchal. So my take on it really is that women and girls spaces have to be open for anybody who identifies as, as a gender minority. 
for anyone, I shouldn't say identifies as, for anyone who is a gender minority. And, and I think that that means that sometimes people who are transmasculine, that actually the space where they will feel most at home and most welcome will actually be in a place that's traditionally uh, for women and girls. That's not always the case for transmasculine people. Sometimes those folks are actually like, I just want to be in the, the spaces that are, are traditionally like men's spaces. I think that we have to look at it as who holds the power in society and what are we doing when we come together in these spaces for people who have been traditionally marginalized in chess or traditionally marginalized in physics. And if our goal here is to create a space where we feel seen and supported and safe and uplifted, then our trans and non-binary fam need that at least as much as cisgender women and girls do. And that's something that it's an opportunity for solidarity and mutual support. And I think it's really exciting, actually, to think about the ways in which all of us can be working together to break down the, the barriers that we face so that, you know, one day there isn't sort of this question of like, well, why should the, the U.S. championship and the U.S. women's championship run concurrently? Because, of course, no player is going to qualify for both of them, right? And I know that Grandmaster Crush has had to deal with this exact scenario of being asked, well, like, which one are you going to play in? And I know that this has been an ongoing conversation. But, you know, how do we work together to change the conditions? And I think that that's what people should be thinking about. I agree. And I do think that the conversation is very exciting. And I should clarify that we do have a transgender policy at U.S. Chess that allows for anyone to change their gender if they have changed their, you know, identification recently. And that would allow them to play in women's tournaments. And we also have our programs open to gender minorities. And you did help me with that language. So I want to thank you, Chanda. But that said... I still feel like sometimes when I'm interviewed by journalists, you know, especially rapid fire things, it does kind of end up getting condensed to like girls versus boys, women versus men. That does feel like sometimes it's exaggerating that gender binary, which is the opposite of what I want to do. So it's important to just kind of like continue to be like conscious of how to direct the conversation instead of getting directed by it. Yeah, I think we're all learning, right? And 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 that's something I talk about in that in that chapter, the anti-patriarchy agenda was actually even working through continuing to see myself as a woman in some ways, but also understanding myself as agender is not having an internal sense of gender. And people like having questions about that, my own questions about that. I think that we're all still learning how do we expand the conversation in a way that is supportive and uplifting. And again, I always think about if the person in front of me were a child, what circumstances would I want to create for them? And I think that that's always a great like thought experiment for us to return to, which is like, how do we create the conditions where children are nourished, they're well cared for, they have the health care that they need, and, and they have the psychosocial support that they need to develop into healthy adults. So I'm constantly thinking about what are those circumstances, but I think we're all still learning. And I agree that those questions from the press continue to be challenging, particularly, I imagine, for you, um, as someone who has for so long been the face of, in many ways, women in chess in the American media in, in a lot of ways. 
that people expect you to stick with women and girls in chess, even, you know, because of the organizational work that you've done, because of the books that you've written, like books, plural. And we're all working on it. And I I appreciated, like, it was so easy for us to have that conversation about including gender minorities. And I think sometimes it's just that much, which is just like, you're not going to know everything. But the question is, is whether when someone comes to you and says, hey, have you thought about this? You're like, yeah, cool. I want people to feel welcome. It was really like, part of it wasn't necessarily you knowing that off the bat, but having the spirit for it, in a lot of ways, the most key thing. And I think what people need to understand is that it's a, even if it's a small percentage, like that's, I think, why people kind of get confused or like, well, there's not like some huge percentage of like transgender chess players that like want to be involved. So why do we have to talk about it so often? Because it's, it's not just about the percentage, it's about what's possible, like what people can imagine. I think it's definitely about what's possible. But, you know, I think part of what's interesting about that is then people make these statistical arguments about like, oh, it's a small number of people. And I'm like, well, oh, if it's a small number of people, then you shouldn't be that stressed out about it because like, it's not actually going to change things that much for you, right? Like, calm down. <laughs> the amount of panicking that people do while also shouting it's a small number of people. And it's like, yo, you have to pick one. You're either like upset because it's a lot of people or you're in like a serious moral panic about a very small number of people, but like pick one. That's a great point. And I just want to shout out again your book as we conclude the interview, because it's it's at once a real reflection of who you are, which is so many things at once. And also it's just really well written. And thank you. I'm, I love writing and I love reading. So just on a sentence level, I think you deserve a lot of a lot of credit, especially because you wrote it pretty quickly. Like, it seems like you wrote it in about a year, right? It was about a year and a half. And I would say, like, you know, some of it is based on writing that I had done over the years. And so about 20, 25% of it I had in some draft, like when I sat down to actually draft the first draft of the book, I had some version, but all of it got rewritten. Like anybody who pulls up like any of the writings that it's based on would be like, yeah, I see the the foundation here, but almost everything sentence by sentence got re-examined, rewritten, reorganized. And who's your inspiration like on a sentence level? And when did you fall in love with that like craft of writing? You know, my goal was to have at least one sentence that I think Jane Austen wouldn't have been ashamed to put her name next to. <laughs> I just like, I, when I think of people who really like knew how to write, like at, a, like at the level of the sentence, Jane Austen knew how to write at the level of the sentence. And so I think I'm always thinking about how can I get a sentence that is as good as Jane Austen's. I will also say that I've been very inspired by Kiese Lehman, who is an essayist essayist, memoirist, novelist. His novel Long Division is actually being re-released this June. And it's about time traveling Black kids and white Jewish kids in Mississippi. So folks should pick that up. I, I might recommend it as, as a, a Mad Woman's Book Club suggestion for, for U.S. chess. Kiese is constantly talking about craft. I'm so lucky to be friends with him. I'm so lucky to have been edited by him. He has this really beautiful piece that I think you can find on his website where he says, we not good enough to not write four hours a day. So he's basically always saying, work at it. Even him, he's brilliant. The man just like talks in genius sentences, but he also, he works hard at it. And so like chess, it's a matter of practice. Yeah, he's, he's wonderful. And you did your um, book opening event with him and it was wonderful. And there's a YouTube video of it, which I can link in the show notes. He also wrote a, a heavy, which was a bestseller, but Long Division was before that. 
But what was the sentence that Jane Austen would have approved of? Because I have one that I'm going to end the show with, but I don't know if that's the one. You know what? I'll just let you pick one. This one I love. You said, you stood there looking at more white dots than I could count. And the white haze that inspired the Milky Way's name, a combination of stars that are too small for our eyes to resolve and illuminated gases. I felt filled with wonder, but also intense grief. I love that one. That was talking about your experience in Hawaii and seeing the stars like you'd never seen before, but how it also presaged this um, difficult decision that you had to make, which I guess I won't give away the whole story because it'll take a little while, but you guys should read the book because that is a really beautiful setup. You know, I have to say, I'm really proud of the, the opening of the book. Really the first sentence, once upon a time, there was a universe. I feel like, you know, when we talk about like craft, an opening sentence is really important because it determines whether someone keeps reading or it's like, eh, I'll put the book down in the store, right? And I feel like it, that sentence has a pretty good hook, particularly since like it's not a novel. It's not science fiction. Once upon a time, there was a universe. It's our universe. But I've also had multiple people tell me that that sentence just worked for them. So I feel pretty good about that one. The first one. Yeah. Well, and we just have to bring Jane Austen back to get her opinion. I, yeah, I would love to talk to zombie Jane Austen about it. Well, you just have to get the time to go the other way, (laughs) which you said, you know, there's no real reason that that shouldn't be the case. We're not exactly sure why. My son doesn't understand it. He asks me all the time why he can't go back to being zero. I love that question. That's such a good, like, he's like a little rabbi. That's such a good, like, rabbinical question. I'll have to get you now that we're now that we're all vaccinated. Hopefully, pretty soon I can I can have you answer that question for him. <laughs> yes, I'm sure you'll do a better job than we do. <laughs> Excellent. I look forward to it. Thank you so much, Dr. Chanda Prescott Weinstein. She is a fan of chess. She used it at a difficult time in her life, and she also is a theoretical physicist, author of an incredible new book, The Disordered Cosmos. And I'm so glad that you did find your way in the chess world a little bit because it allows our world to learn from you. And I think there's so many, so many commonalities and also so much that we can learn from the work that you've done. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. It was, it was a great time. Thank you. If you like what we're doing at US Chess to encourage women and girls to explore STEM fields, accentuate competence, and approach an even ratio with a focus on intersectionality, your donation to our US Chess Women programs is always appreciated and tax deductible. The US Chess Suite of podcasts, including Ladies Night, are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Don't forget to listen and subscribe to all U.S. chess podcasts from One Move at a Time, Cover Stories, and The Chess Underground. Till next time, may every night be ladies' night. Now according to Sockfish, I got it all wrong After slightly My dear Capablanco, you tell me we'll learn more from our defeats. Who needs victory?